0: Let's dive into Mark chapter one. We're going to go right through the book of Mark over the next several months Uh, in this series, Christ has come, seeing Jesus in the gospel of Mark. The title of today's message is Jesus Baptism. And, you know, as we look at the the gospel of Mark, you know, every gospel, the synoptic gospels, which is sort of the the perspective of Jesus that the different writers of the gospel had in their witness accounts of seeing Jesus, uh, as, as. Mark writes his gospel. What we see in the gospel of Mark, maybe unlike some of the other uh, gospels, is not sort of a bunch of theological assertions or just the highlights of Jesus' teaching ministry. We really see Jesus the action hero. We see Jesus moving from scene to scene, doing incredible, amazing, miraculous things, and really affirming and attesting to the fact that he is He is the prince of heaven. He is the son of God sent to this world. Uh, Let me say it this way. If God came to this world, what would his earthly life look like? Well, I believe it would look like the gospel of Mark. And so, you know, in this day when everybody loves... You know, movies about superheroes and stories about superheroes. we got the, you know, the new DC movie coming out, Black Adam. And we've got the Marvel series. I know my my uh, kids love the Marvel series. Uh, I kind of like the Marvel series. kind of fun to watch. Uh, one of the fun things we do as a family. Um, here we have the story above all stories. The hero above all heroes. Jesus Christ, the King, uh, coming to this world. And he comes as sort of this action hero, just doing amazing things, defeating the devil, uh, speaking to the corrupt, and, uh, and really leading sort of this spiritual revolution as he introduces uh, the new covenant of grace, which would have been radical and scandalous to those who heard it at that time. So if you have your Bibles, turn uh, with me to Mark chapter one. I'm gonna begin reading there in just a moment. You know, we gather here as a church every week, in large part to feed our faith, to become people of faith, but faith by itself isn't necessarily good. It matters what we put our faith in. Misplaced faith can be disastrous. People in cults have strong faith. You know, there was a terrible, uh, a terrible story that happened years ago, November 1978. And we call it the Jonestown massacre. As a cult leader named Jim Jones deceived. And he was deceived and he, you know, he, the devil used him to deceive hundreds and hundreds of people into a mass suicide. It's just, the story is absolutely tragic. Well, they had faith. Jim Jones had faith. Uh, the, The followers of Jim Jones had faith. And it was disastrous because their faith was misplaced in a false gospel, in a false prophet, in a false teacher, and in a false reality. So faith by itself is not necessarily good. We need to have our faith in the right thing. If our if the object of our faith is true and good, then it will provide what it promises. You know, this last week, um, <clears throat> my son Jack had been asking me if I could take him to a local pawn shop to see how much this gold was worth that he had in his collection. He would bought some on Amazon some years back and, and he had this little cross that, that was uh, gold. And so we... Poor kid, we took him to the pawn shop and the first lady we talked to, she looked at him after she kind of observed it and she she put a magnet to it and stuck to the magnet, which is like a a sure, a certainty that it's not, you know, pure gold, it's not actual gold. And she, she looks at him and I just like, sorry. And so we went and got a second, <clears throat> we got a second opinion at another place by a gold expert and... Um, <clears throat> And Jack had this little coin he wanted to look at too. And, and uh, again, just the guy said, I'm sorry, it's, it's worthless. And you know, Jack believed for a long time that he had something of value. He and I talked about this, how it's a great picture of the gospel. He believed that he had something of great value for a long time, but it was worthless the whole time. And many people live like that in this world. They hold on to something thinking it's incredibly valuable. This is gonna complete me. This, this, is, this is my <clears throat> everything. This defines me. And in the end, when it comes under the scrutiny of the God of heaven, and I hope that's not on Judgment Day, I hope that the people of Clarksville, the people of our country, can see before that great day that the idols of this world are worthless. But under the scrutiny of God, we see it for what it really is. <clears throat> so here at, Re- here at Redeeming Hope, excuse me, <clears throat> we focus on teaching the, the right object of faith, Jesus Christ. And that's why we teach through books of the Bible, A clear picture of Jesus is presented when we study things like the Gospel of Mark and faith in Jesus is built and strengthened. And there's no clearer picture of Jesus than in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And today we're looking at the Gospel of Mark. And in some ways, this was a very dark time in Israel, full of people who were incredibly uh, discontent. And not much has changed. Our world is still full of people who are not content with the world we live in. And in today's political climate, we see how con- discontent people are. You know, every, every four years we elect a new president. You know, every, every couple of years we elect a new governor. <clears throat> and everybody wants the world to be different. Smaller government and more freedoms, some say. Others say bigger government with more protections. And the candidates come along and they promise that they'll deliver that world, and inevitably and eventually they fail. And so this cycle happens again. Somebody else comes along who practices, who who promises the perfect world. And it keeps working. They keep tapping into our discontent to win elections. And we're always feeling like there should be more. One comedian said this. Everything is amazing and nobody is happy. We tell horror stories from, from planes. Oh, we didn't board for 20 minutes. Then we sat on the runway for 40 minutes. Okay, said the comedian, what happened next? Did you fly through the world like a bird? Did you participate in the miracle of flight? You're sitting in a chair in the sky, but the chair won't recline. Everything is amazing and nobody's happy. And all the advancements in technology, medicine, and the standard of living don't change the fact that we all want a better world. And we all think we know what we need to be truly satisfied. But in the end, it's kind of like a candy wrapper in the wind. You no, know, just the wind blows it here and blows it there and you're chasing it down and you finally grab it and realize that it's empty. C.S. Lewis said this, What does not satisfy when we find it was not the thing that we were desiring. We're all good at recognizing lack, but we're terrible at knowing what we lack. There's, it's like there's this phantom itch deep down in our souls and politicians come along and they itch that itch, or, you know, some product comes along, or some car, or some, you know, something in your mind, some achievement, some, some status. I don't know, it can be anything. Comes along and itches that phantom itch, but we're never, ever satisfied. We need someone on the outside to diagnose us. And Mark makes the astounding claim that what we are after, what we really need and really want has come. That this story is the one that we want to hear. That the ultimate answer wasn't what we thought we wanted, but it's what we need. So let's jump in. And what I'm going to do is I'm not going to read the whole text at once. I'm just going to go verse by verse, and then we'll talk about it. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now the word gospel means good news. We've talked about about that a lot in our gospel-centered series. It's the good news that Jesus healed our brokenness and rescued us through his life, death, death, burial, and resurrection. Let me ask you a question. Is the gospel good news to you? You know, people who sort of are repulsed by the gospel makes me wonder if they've actually ever really heard it. People who are repulsed by religion may precisely be that. They're repulsed by religion, not by the gospel. Because the gospel is good news. And if you've really heard it, if your heart's really heard it and understood it, your heart leaps. To call Jesus Christ here in Mark 1.1 is a huge claim. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He wasn't the son of Mary and Joseph Christ. (laughs) But Christ means the anointed king. Mark is saying it's what they wanted. Like us, Israel didn't know their deepest need either. They weren't satisfied. They were discontent. They knew or thought they knew their immediate need. They wanted political freedom. They were an oppressed nation but they didn't know what kind of Christ, what kind of anointed king they really needed. They thought they needed a military king who would come and lop off the heads of their enemies. They didn't know that they needed a king who would defeat the enemies within and the eternal enemies of death and hell. He was a greater king than they had in mind. He was a son of God. And when we say that Jesus is a son of God, we're not saying that Jesus is less than God, that God is God and Jesus is just his son. No, think about it this way. A son is someone who has the attributes of his father. You know, if you look at pictures of my kids or look just look at my kids, you know, I just had somebody say this week, man, he looks just like you. He has my attributes. Unfortunately, for good and for not so good sometimes, my, my sons have my attributes, my daughters too. Right? And so Jesus is the son of God. He has the attributes of the father. Barnabas was the in the scriptures was the son of encouragements. He had the attributes of encouragement, encouragements. James and John were the sons of thunder. They had the, the attributes of being like boisterous and, you know, uh, they take it by force, kind of. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus has the attributes of God. Jesus is God on earth. And when the Jewish leaders heard Jesus calling God his father, they knew what that meant. They knew he was claiming to be God. And that's why it says in John chapter 5 and verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see that? So by calling God his father and referring to himself as the son, they knew he was saying, I am equal with God. Claims to the deity of Christ are everywhere in scripture. In fact, Mark goes even further and says in Mark chapter one and verse two, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So he says, John the Baptist is one who was prophesied to come to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord himself. And he quotes from Isaiah 40, which says this, a voice, in verse three, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. And even the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places made plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's actually from Isaiah 40. So the one John is getting everyone ready for is the Lord himself, not just the next great king or next great military leader or general sort of, but God with us. What the people really needed was God. And this is the danger for us. We think we know what we need God to be, just like they did. So we start to construct a God in our minds that is exactly what we want and does for us what we want. We think we need to be more successful. So we start to believe in a Jesus who makes us wealthy and and influential and prosperous. We think we need to change someone who's in our lives. So we find verses that seem to say that we're right and they're wrong so we can control them with the scriptures or with my sort of authority that I got from a God that I made in my image. After all, Jesus wants them to be just like we want them to be. Or we think we need a perfect church which is defined as some ideal in our heads. And we find the verses where Jesus teaches that it should be just like we think it should be. We use our own greatest needs to make a Jesus in our image. But here's the truth of it. Jesus will be what we want, but much different. And the call will be for us to change, to fit him instead of vice versa. Not make a God in my image and change him and what he's actually like to fit me and what I want, but I'm going to change to fit his designs and his lordship. If we read the gospel and never see anything about ourselves that needs to change in light of who Jesus is, then we aren't reading closely enough. Because the truth is, the fact that Jesus is God makes Jesus a little scary, but good, If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, you might remember that C.S. Lewis, the author, referred to Aslan as a good lion, but not a safe lion. That's that's a great description of Jesus. He is good. He he is the essence of good, but he is not safe. And from the very beginning of this story, we get the idea that things can't possibly go like we would have expected them to, or like they would have expected them to. Verse 4, Mark 1, John appeared baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Not how they would have planned it. Not how I would have planned it. John appears in the wilderness. And when it says wilderness, I mean, we're talking about like a remote area in, in Israel. I mean, this was not close to Jerusalem. This was, this was in the north, way out in the country. It was like Redneckville, you know, according to those who, who lived in Jerusalem. They would have thought about it that way. You know, can anything good come from that area? I mean, that's, that's what the religious leaders actually said later on. So he's, he's from the wilderness. It's kind of like, you know, if you're in Clarksville, I, I, not to pick on another town or place, but, you know, sort of a rural area, Like it'd probably be more like, like Waverly or maybe uh, the farmlands and hills outside of Waverly. It was not the place, my point is, it's not the place anybody expected anything great to happen. Further, John is doing his work outside the temple of Jerusalem, which was the epicenter of spiritual activity, and he's doing his ministry work in the filthy, dirty Jordan River. This was all wrong. Not supposed to be this way. First, it's not the city. It's the country. Second, it's in the river. There's no temple. There's no temple sacrifices. There's no priests. And third, the messenger, John, was supposed to be a little more dignified. He was supposed to, you know, wear robes and, and you know, be a little more pristine, have a doctorate maybe, eloquent in speech and appealing to the elite of Jerusalem. But John wore camel's hair and ate locusts, which are bugs, and wild honey. I mean, this is, this is crazy. This is not how it was supposed to be. Nobody saw it coming this way. By the way, he's Jesus' cousin, John was. So here we have Jesus' redneck cousin wearing camel hair, eating bugs and wild honey in a dirty river in northern Israel. That's how God announced the coming of the Son. I mean, it's not how we would have designed it. Not how they would have designed it. It's not what you would call refined. And God chose to use John as the messenger to prepare the way for Christ, the anointed king, to come. He said, look, the Lamb of God, Behold, the Lamb of God, he comes to take away the sin of the world. And isn't this so much like God? Not man's mold, but God's mold. Elijah was like that. And John is actually referred to that he'd come in the spirit and the, the power of Elijah, in a way. Like the same, the same uh, you know, aggressiveness, the same, you know, thunder that that and and sort of that edge that Elijah. Had John would have that, and he came like that so that everybody would know what Paul said in First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. He said, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human, no human being may boast in the presence of God. In other words, God did it this way because He wanted to show. That it's all grace and he gets all the glory. Man doesn't get glory, God gets the glory. God loves his own glory. He desires to show us his glory because that, that is when we're the most blessed. Like John Piper famously said, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. God often uses nerds, not quarterbacks. So if you're tempted to boast because God used you, Remember that he used you in spite of you, not because of you. So welcome to the fellowship of the weak and the foolish. That's us. That's his church. On the flip side, if you're feeling like, well, God could never use me because I lack natural ability and charisma, you may be more likely to be used in God's kingdom than someone who has all those things. So God sends his messenger to prepare the way of the Lord. How are they prepared? Let's look again. And verses 4 and 5. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Verse 4 says that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People are confessing their sins and being baptized. Baptism is a symbol of washing from dirt, you know, you're going under the water. It's a, it's a picture of a symbol of washing and turning from sin. He's calling them to acknowledge that the biggest problem is not out there. That was John's ministry. He'd repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Be washed by the spirit of God. Be washed from your sin. So he's, he's teaching that the biggest problem is not out there. It's not Rome which would have been scandalous for some to hear. The biggest problem is in here. The biggest problem is the sin in our hearts. It's the sin in their lives. It's the sin in our lives. And if Jesus is God, the fact that we have a broken relationship with him is far more serious even than political freedom. Well, we often think this way. There's this problem in my life and I need to get Jesus to fix it for me. I need this or that. I need, um, you know, I need healing from sickness or... My finances are, you know, broken. I I need Jesus to fix my finances or my family's messed up. I need Jesus to fix my family. And if we merely look to Jesus to fix the external, then Jesus becomes like a subcontractor that we hire to come and fix one part of our lives. But it never really gets to the core, to the heart. And John the Baptist through his message of repentance and his baptism of repentance is getting to the deepest need that we all have. And that is cleansing and forgiveness from sin. And the real Jesus, because he is God, demands repentance. Yes, he is love. Yes, he is merciful and compassionate. Remember what he said to the woman who was caught in adultery when he said to the Pharisees who wanted to stone her, he was without sin, cast the first stone. They all dropped their stones and left because they had sin too. And he looked at the woman and he said this, where are your accusers? She says, they're gone, Lord. I don't know where they are. He said, neither do I condemn you. There's grace and mercy. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Sometimes we like to hear the first part. We don't, Americans especially, don't want to hear the second part. But John is calling people to the river. Repent of your sin. Be cleansed of your sin. Repentance is turning from sin. Not starting a Jesus hobby. Not making Jesus your buddy, but following him as Lord and Savior. It means confessing that the problem with the world and the reason that it's not as it's supposed to be is because I'm not as I'm supposed to be. And this is important whether you call yourself a Christian or not. Notice who's flocking to John in verse 5. It's God's people. But often our religion, uh, it's almost like it gives us permission not to repent. Well, I don't need repentance. I'm a Baptist. I don't need repentance. I'm a Lutheran, or I'm a Presbyterian, or I, I'm homeschooled, or I came from a Christian family, or I said a sinner's prayer. I, I don't need repentance. I, I wear this, uh, this piece of protective religious jewelry. I don't need repentance. I've been. I was baptized. I don't need repentance. I I serve like crazy around here in this church. I'm involved in a small group, but the call is for all of us to recognize our need for repentance and to remain in a state of dependence upon the grace of God in our relationship with him. Now the part of the story that was really shocking. Repentance in those days was always done at the temple with an animal sacrifice. As I mentioned earlier, there's no sacrifice. There's no temple. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the temple? Where's the authority to do what John is doing? And here he comes. In verse nine, it says, In those days came Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Wait, what? Wasn't Jesus sinless? Why would the sinless one receive a baptism of repentance? It's a compelling question. It's because of what it's explained later by Paul. And this is one of the reasons why it's a wonderful thing to have the scriptures And some of us say, I wish I was alive in Jesus' time. You might not have even known what was going on or understood what was happening. We have the scriptures now that actually explain him. And Paul the Apostle explains Jesus' sacrifice when he says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Took our sin in himself, he exchanged places with us, he became our substitute. He was, in a sense, going into the waters of baptism to repent for our sins. It was a foretelling, a foreshadowing of what was coming. He knew he came for the cross. And the meaning of this goes right to the very heart of the Christian faith and explains how different the Christian faith is from other world religions. Other world religions have their founder, the great teacher, Muhammad or Buddha or Moses. And they say, our great example, follow him, imitate him, be like him, and you'll be accepted by God. And sometimes when people say, aren't all religions the same? The immediate instinct of the Christian is to object and say, no, ours is different. And ours is different because we have a resurrected Savior who... It's about what he did for us, not what we did for him, right? That, that's the, God, the gospel of grace. is so radically, It's so radically different that in, in the early church days, the Romans wouldn't even call Christianity a religion. They called it the anti-religion. However, if you're just talking about moralism, then kind of there's some versions of Christianity that are a lot like other religions. If Jesus is just our moral hero... Then it's a lot like other religions in the world, if Jesus is just our example. But at the core of the Christian faith, we find that Jesus is not just our example, but he's our substitute. I want you to hear me on this and hear me correctly. There is no better example for you to follow than the example of Christ. But if Jesus Christ is your example and not your substitute, then you are not yet a Christian. You are not right with God and your sins are not forgiven. What does this have to do with Jesus getting baptized? Baptism, as we said, was a symbol of washing and turning from sin. Jesus, our perfect substitute. He needed no repentance, but he repented on our behalf. And for millions of people like us who would believe in him. He and John announced it. John said, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the temple sacrifice. There was a temple sacrifice. There was a Lamb walking down to the river. Let's contrast every other religion versus true Christianity. Every religion says, live a righteous life and then give it to God and he'll be pleased with you. True Christianity says, grace says, Jesus lived a righteous life and he gave it to you. Jesus took your sin upon himself and now because of him, you are loved and accepted by God. Remember what we talked about during the Gospel-Centered Church series. Josh talked a lot about it, about how sometimes the modern church says, God did his part, and now you do your part. And I love how Josh pointed out last week, God did his part, and he did your part. His part is to work. Our part is to believe. Our part is to receive to receive the reality that Jesus is our substitute. It isn't the religion we would have invented or that they would have invented. God comes as a substitute. It was unexpected, but it's what they needed and it's what we need. And here we see the importance of the cross. What does this tell What does Jesus' baptism tell us? What does a baptism of repentance tell us? That our biggest need is the cross of Christ? where the perfect one died on our behalf. And our need is to continually repent. That doesn't just mean that we sort of bemoan our miserable condition before God constantly. It it means to remain in a state of dependence. To continually remain in a state of dependence on grace, on the love of God, on his sacrifice, so that the cross stays central in our thinking. This means that we walk in the idea that what makes us acceptable is our substitute not our performance. We grow as we believe more in our sinfulness that Jesus had to die for, and as we grow in our appreciation for what he accomplished for us on the cross. And we've said this before, and we'll say it again. This is a good thing to remember. Tim Keller would say this a lot. The gospel teaches us that I'm more wicked than I ever dared believe, but I'm more loved than I ever dared hope at the very same time. I'm more wicked than I ever dared believe, but I'm more loved than I ever dared hope. Because Jesus came willingly. Before we ever met a single condition to attract him to us or to earn anything, he came and he stepped into those waters of baptism and he repented on our behalf for those who would receive him. We can never let the cross shrink from the center of our lives. And finally, verses 10 and 11. And for all who watched all of this and thought that John was nuts and Jesus was crazy, I'm sure this helped. Verse 10, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God the Father affirmed Christ the Son right in front of everybody. And here we also see a picture of the triune God. This is where we get the doctrine of the Trinity from. We see God the Father speaks, God the Son is baptized, and God the Spirit descends like a dove. So Jesus was affirmed. But more than that, Jesus' affirmation is our affirmation. Remember what we already said. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Think about this. If Jesus is our substitute, then the affirming words of the Father that were spoken over the Son in that moment are spoken over you and I in the gospel. When we believe in Christ, suddenly the Father's voice speaks over our hearts because Jesus is our substitute. This is my Son whom I love. This is my daughter whom I love. I am now well pleased with you because of Christ. So, this was all new Radical and scandalous for Israel. A new prophet. Two new prophets, actually. John the Baptist, some have considered him to be the last Old Testament prophet. Christ, the sort of the, the new prophet speaking the words of God, but more than a prophet, a king, the Son of God. A new covenant, a new position before the Father in Christ. Everything was new. And when we encounter Jesus, the Jesus that is taught to us in the gospel of Mark, everything's new for us too. Jesus, to meet Jesus is for all things to become new. This is what we need. It, is, it might not be what we thought we needed, what we expected, but if we'll believe in him, he'll do what John said in this text. He'll baptize us or soak us in the Spirit of God. That what happens naturally in the story with water happens spiritually to everyone who believes in Jesus. That we're baptized into Christ in His Spirit and we're soaked in the Spirit of God. And Jesus guides us home. His Spirit begins to lead us and guide us. He guides us to the Father. He guides us home. You know, I I have a GPS in my phone. Uh, Google Maps is what I use. And in, in that app, I have my home address saved under home. And wherever I am in the world, wherever I am in the country, I can go into that GPS and I can type in, I can just click home, that home button. And immediately wherever I'm at, I see the road home. And, and the app will begin guiding me there. And when we trust in Jesus and listen to his word, we're, we're, we're baptized in the spirit. We're soaked in the spirit. We're indwelled with the spirit. And it's like putting home into our spiritual GPS. He begins to guide. He shows us the Father. He shows us heaven. He shows us home. No matter what your circumstances, Jesus will guide you home. No matter what your moral record is, Jesus begins to guide us home. He guides us to our heavenly home. And we become pilgrims in this world en route on a a journey to to the heavenly city. One final footnote on baptism It's it's amazing that we're talking about that this week, because just last week, we witnessed as a church the joyous moment of Michael Mazinski and his son, Michael, being baptized. And we baptized him uh, in the pool right at the YMCA. And it was just such a wonderful moment. We, you know, we just worshiped God and prayed together. And there's just so many tears and so much embrace as we just rejoice over what God is doing in that family. But before Jesus ascended to heaven, he actually said this to his disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus commanded water baptism as a picture of the spiritual baptism that already has already happened within. Baptism doesn't save us, but it's a it's an external picture of an internal transformation. And water baptism is also the moment when we go public. That's the moment when we say, I am one of them. I belong to Jesus and his people, and I publicly am, I'm publicly demonstrating that. Baptism means I believe the gospel. I believe the problem is within, and I need a substitute, and Jesus is my substitute. How do we apply this message today? about Jesus' baptism. Three things, and it's all about baptism. Number one, be baptized in Christ's spirit by believing in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Go to him. Don't look at your moral record. (laughs) The scripture says where sin abounds, grace abounds. Don't look at, at your performance. Look at his love and go to him, because if you now recognize your sin, you are a candidate for the grace of God. Those who don't recognize their sin never reach out for the great for grace. They, the cross doesn't make sense to them. But now, because you see your sin, the cross makes sense. Go to Him, believe in Him, and be saved. Number two, be baptized in water if you haven't been. If you're baptized as an infant, we teach believers' baptism here because we believe the scriptures teach that. Not that you can't value your infant baptism in some way, but we believe that when you're when you are a confessing believer as as an adult or or young adult, or just as somebody who has a cognizance about your faith, that is an opportunity for you and where you ought to step forward yourself into the waters of baptism and say, I believe, not just my parents or my pastor or my priest, I believe in the Lord Jesus myself and step into the waters of baptism. Follow Jesus into the waters of baptism and follow his commandment to do so and be baptized in water and talk to us and we'd be glad to make that happen. And finally, number three, be baptized relationally in a church community and family if you haven't been already. If you have been, if you're part of this church family or another church family, continue to walk with God's people and you and I get to be a part of what John the Baptist, Jesus and his disciples began. The redeemed, rescued church of Jesus Christ growing and moving forward in this world until the day that we see him face to face. I hope you're encouraged today as we have considered Mark 1 and Jesus' baptism and how that comes to bear on our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love, and we see it toward Christ in Jesus' baptism, and then we see it through Christ in Jesus' baptism. Help us to live this week loved. Help us remember that what you want from us more than anything is to be loved, is to receive the love that you've given us in Christ. Let it become a song in our hearts, and let it bring us to a place of joy and confidence as we walk in the joy of our salvation. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching. If you can come in person or Redeeming Hope sometime, love to see you face to face. Until next time, remember, Jesus is enough.